This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. So many people, when they start a business or want to scale a business, they create a product or service, they go out to sell it, and then they try to sell more of it, whether that be through a sales force, through advertising. They create something and they focus on scale. The challenge is they're making a tremendously large mistake. This is a mistake that we have been making in our business for at least the first year. This all came about because I had a conversation with a friend of mine named Mike Dillard. Mike is somebody who I look up to when it comes to uh, the marketing and advertising game. He has done extraordinarily well. He's made a lot of money helping a lot of people. And when he read this book, Hacking Growth, it made him realize he knew nothing about marketing (laughs) because he was making the exact same mistake that we've been making and that you're probably making right now. So I am excited today for you to meet the man who was in charge of helping scale the growth of companies like LogMeIn, Dropbox, Eventbrite. Has helped some companies scale to incredibly massive levels because they did one thing differently. With that, let's get into our conversation with author of the book Hacking Growth, Sean Ellis. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like Breakfast on the Go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash O-N-E-5-0 and use code O-N-E-5-0 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. I read your book, Hacking Growth, which was handed to me by a friend, Mike Dillard, who has had a tremendous amount of success um, selling products online. And, you know, when I think of my mentors when it comes to marketing, he's one of them. And he said that this book made him realize he knows nothing about marketing, <laughs> <laughs> which was a very high compliment. And when I dove in and, and started reading the stories behind you know, what you did to contribute to the growth of companies like LogMeIn and Dropbox, uh, I was blown away. Why don't we start by talking about one of those companies and, and what hacking growth really looks like? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. So you know, kind of the aha moment for me was really my second it was my second marketing role. And so I'd, I'd spent about five years with the, with the same group of people running a game company that turned out to be really successful. But it was not until LogMeIn that I, I started to recognize the power of like a, a really singular focus on, on what really mattered and getting not just myself, but, but the whole extended team. So not just the marketing team, but literally, literally the engineers, the product people, et cetera. And so what happened there was we built the product. 
kind of like everybody else does. This was this was uh, kind of 10, 12 years ago. So um, really lean startup and some of these other some of these other concepts hadn't hadn't emerged yet where there's a little bit more sort of agility in how you build the product. So we built the product and hoped it was good. And then I was given the task to go out and and start marketing the product. And um, I in the past I'd always been very, you know, return on investment focused. So for every dollar I spent, I was trying to track the return on investment and I was able to I was able to get a pretty good return on investment as I as I started spending money. But what I found was that when I got to about $10,000 a month in spending, I was running out of opportunities of, of new channels to drive growth. I would run tests and they weren't working. I couldn't scale the existing campaigns beyond where they were. And I was really getting frustrated by it. And when I, when I stepped back and looked what happened and really tried to figure out why am I, why am I hitting this growth wall, I realized that the majority of people who signed up for the product we're never actually using the product. And so, you know, in the, in the software world, there's, there's kind of, you, you have some, some benefits of uh, not really having a marginal cost on the software. So we were able to have a free version of a product and a premium version of the product. But ultimately, we, we started people on the free version. And then when they liked it, they would upgrade to the premium version. And so, so there was kind of this delayed effect on purchasing. But when I looked at what's happening, they weren't even using the free product. So over 90% of the people who signed up, they filled out the form. They said that they wanted the product. They, they weren't using it. And so all of my monetization was happening on you know, just the 10% who actually used the product. And then there was another funnel of how many of those would go into the premium. And so it was you know, starting with that understanding of, gosh, it's going to be really hard to grow this business if majority of people who sign up for it never actually even use the product. And uh, I brought that information to our CEO. Fortunately, we were still really small at the time. Today, it's about a $6 billion company. But at that time, we, we had just, uh, just launched the product. And so I brought the information to our CEO and said, you know, until we figure out how to get these people after they sign up to actually use the product, I think we're going to have a really hard time growing this business. And to his credit, he, uh, he looked at the data. His name's Mike Simon, still, still a good friend. And we, he, uh, he basically said, you know what? Not only do I think this is important, I think it's it's the most important thing for the business right now. So he actually put a complete freeze on the product development roadmap of all the new features they were adding and said, all product people, all engineers, all marketing people, which wasn't that many, we're still pretty small, but everybody is going to be focusing on trying to get the people who sign up for this product to actually use it. And so through lots of research then. So once, once we actually had that defined, he shared that with the product team and engineering team. We were all on the same page of what we were trying to do. Then we could research why were people signing up and not using it. And we could start to run experiments and, and try to just kind of improve every step along the way from sign up to usage. And within four months, we were able to actually improve the usage rate by a thousand percent. And so you, you might think, okay, that's great. Now, now you have... 10 times as many people who sign up are actually using the product. That's great. That's going to really help growth. But it, what was really interesting is how that helped growth. What it did was it took all these campaigns that I had previously tested and they might be money losers. So if I invested, say, you know, a dollar and I only get 50 cents back, I'm, I'm not going to keep doing that investment. Suddenly that same dollar is getting $5 back. I'm going to invest that dollar as many times as I can. And so 
what we were able to do is actually scale our marketing spend almost immediately after we, we had that improvement to about a million dollars a month, a little over a million dollars a month with a three-month payback on those marketing dollars. So suddenly, suddenly the whole thing opened up once we all, as a team, worked together on, on the thing that was really holding back our growth. So that was, to me, such an aha moment and such an important part in the history of, of the growth of that business that that's what I ended up doing for the next few years was once I left Log Me In, going in and basically doing six-month uh, interim VP marketing roles at companies like Dropbox and Eventbrite to essentially help bring the team together around a core goal of value that be delivered to the, uh, to the customers and really figure out how to get those teams working together to unlock the value in their products. What I'm hearing you say is the company was doing what most companies do, what most business people do. They create a product or a service, they go try to sell it, and they try to scale their sales. What you did differently was you started asking the question, why? And you narrowed the focus down to one single thing. That if you just made a change on that one thing, it would make everything else easier or unnecessary. And that allowed you to create a much more valuable product and scale the company exponentially. Absolutely. Yeah, it was really, yeah, what, what is that thing that's holding us back that ultimately was making my job almost impossible? And I think, I think the hard part for people to understand in a, in a bigger company environment is when the problem that's holding you back is outside your sphere of influence, it's actually kind of hard to address that problem. Because if I had gone straight to the product team and said, hey, guys, you need to start focusing more on how we onboard new customers, they would have finger pointed right back to me and said, you know, you need to start bringing in people who are a little more qualified. You're just bringing in junk people and that's why they're not using it. And so you get in this mutual finger pointing. So it really took me going to the CEO with that data and saying, I'm frustrated here. Here, I, you know, we've, we've grown a business together. So I'm not just making excuses. This is our second business. Here's what I think is going on. And I think we're going to have a really hard time making this interesting if we, if we don't address this. And so by getting him on board, then he was able to he was able to get everybody at the table to come together and not finger point, but really just try to focus on what, what was the real problem. Awesome. Awesome. Well, where I'd, I'd like to take this, Sean, is something that I think will be applicable for everybody. And I've told some people this story before, but when I first started this company with Gary and Jay, the first product I ever created was called Time Blocking Mastery. It was a master course that showed people how do you time block and form power habits that stick. I remember we launched this product, had a ton of sales, barely any refunds. Customers were getting amazing results. I thought it was a huge win. And I remember sitting down with Gary at our state of the company meeting and he looked at me and said, I think the product's broken. And I remember looking at him going, Gary, what are you talking about? <laughs> Look at all the sales we just had. Nobody's refunding this thing. Look at their results. And he looked at me and said, um, you know, you've created something world-class if every single person loves it and they want to share it. Is this product world-class? And at that moment, Sean, my heart sank because I realized, no, I'm having to spend money to acquire new customers. Nobody's sharing it. The product's good. It's not great. It's not a must-have in the eyes of the customer. What does it mean to be must-have? Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's an interesting concept that I, that I talk about in, in our book. Um, I, can't, I came to this idea of must-have when I first started working with 
uh, you know, after my first two companies, I started working with these, these additional companies. And I, and I said to myself, if I fail in these companies, what is the thing that's most likely to cause me to fail? And I thought, is it going to be that I didn't work hard enough? Is it going to be that I wasn't creative enough to figure out how to grow this business? And, you know, I was coming in in that marketing role. What I, what I realized was that the thing that's going to hold me back is that if nobody wants or cares about this product, then I can't really execute my way into growth. And so ultimately, that's just sort of the starting point of a must-have is that somebody's got to kind of want or care about it. But then is that enough? Just as you said, like world-class, is that enough? And so what I, what I thought to myself is, not only do I want them to kind of want and kind of care about it, if somebody considers it a must-have, then I really just have to connect the dots between all the people who could benefit from this product and, and ultimately this must-have experience within the product. And so I was able to uncover that by actually, you know, with every product, even if it's a, a bad product with bad marketing, usually somebody's using it. And so I would go in and actually ask the users on the product, the people who've used it recently, how they would feel if they could no longer use the product. And so I, by, by essentially saying, would you care if I took this away? You get a very interesting, truthful answer. And so what I was looking for was, if they said they would be somewhat disappointed, I ignored them. I treated them the same way as if they said they'd be not disappointed at all. What I was looking for was, I wanted to focus in on only the people who said they would be very disappointed without the product. And those people really are what taught me how to market that product. And so um, what I found was that scaling growth on any product became really hard if we didn't have at least 40% of the active users on the product that considered the product a must-have. So over time, I, I, I ran that survey across hundreds and then thousands of companies and started to see companies where it's just like a, a handful of people who said it'd be a, it was a must-have really didn't tend to do very well, where once you got above a certain threshold, those products actually tended to do really well. But then the question is, okay, so if you're not a must-have, are, are you screwed? Do you have to just like close business down? Folks, I want to make sure this is really applicable for you because it matters. Uh, Sean, I'm going to quote you from the book. You said that pouring resources and staff into trying to drive more customers to a product that isn't actually loved or sometimes even understood by its target market is one of the most common and deadly mistakes startup founders can make. And you shared in the book how you can do a must-have survey, which I, I did this for our membership platform for Living Your One Thing, where I just sent a survey out and said, hey, how disappointed would you be if the product was no longer in existence tomorrow? It's not actually going away, but if it was, would you be very disappointed? Somewhat disappointed? Not disappointed at all? or not applicable because you don't even use it anymore. And to my relief, 58% of the people said they would be very disappointed, which is like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, yeah, man, guy, I don't want to have to build this thing over. <laughs> <laughs> well above the 40% kind of target that, that uh, I use, usually look for to grow business. So that's for people, first and foremost, whether you are in a product business, whether you're in a service business, do you think it would help you to identify if what you are currently doing is actually must-have in the eyes of your customers. Can you start? If you can only do one thing based on this episode so far, can you send them that survey and find out if you're even selling the right thing? Sean, what should people do if they get the feedback back and the majority of the people are like, you know what? I actually wouldn't miss you. 
that's the exciting part is that sometimes that happens. Sometimes you get that feedback and, and most of the people don't care. And so the challenge then is if you try to grow that business, uh, as, as you just mentioned from, from the book, we talk about that's the fastest way to kill a business because you're just, you're bringing in a bunch of indifferent people who likely then are going to stop using, aren't going to recommend it, all of the other things. I had one company pretty early on that I worked with when I ran that survey, I'd committed to work with them for six months and, you know, like exclusively. And basically I got the, the numbers back and only 7% of the people said they'd be very disappointed without the product. Ooh. I thought to myself, oh gosh, why didn't I run this survey before I committed to working with them for, for six months? But I, I was committed, so I was, I was going to you know, stick in there. And what's really cool is that we were actually able to get that product above 40% of the people considering a must-have within a few weeks, which seems crazy. But we were able to do that because those 7% of the people who said it was a must-have, they were all focused on the same attributes and same benefit of the product, or majority of them were. And so they held the keys to making it a must-have for other people. We basically, we studied their feedback. We figured out how are they using the product? What is the main benefit they're getting from the product? And then how do we create a, a, a promise about that benefit for new people coming in so they have the right expectations in the first place? So just updating that promise was pretty fast, right? That's just, that's just updating copy on a, on a web page. And then the other thing that we did then was we thought, how can we streamline the delivery of that promise so that quickly as they come into the product, that they're able to experience the benefit that delivers on that promise. And so for, for that product, it was easy because there was just a lot of noise in the product of stuff that didn't really align with it and wasn't that important. And so in digital, you don't have to throw it all away. You just, you just kind of make it less obvious to find. And so we just streamlined them right into the, the, the core experience in the product that delivered on that, on that must-have benefit. And that was, that was the, the trick of getting it to 40%. By the time I left in uh, about six months later, it had, had gone all the way up to 60% of the people considered a must-have. And today, that's a multi-billion dollar company. What I'm hearing you say is if you find out that your product or service is not must-have, first and foremost, to look at the people who said it is a must-have, they would be very disappointed. Find out why. What, are they, what part of, the, of your product or service are they using that's making it so valuable and then redesigning it to make sure that you're crafting that experience? Mm-hmm. And, and, and even before the redesign is just, just set the right expectations. So what happens when you change your messaging is that certain people are not going to be attracted to that new messaging. And, and that's one of the challenges with, with how much people do testing these days is that they they really kind of test their way into the best click-through rate on messaging. But if that, if that message that drives a high click-through rate is inconsistent with what your product is actually good at, you're not going to be converting people who are going to like the product or they're just likely not going to care very much about it. So just updating the messaging becomes this filter of anyone who actually converts on that message is much more likely to love this product because the product's genuinely good at delivering on that message already without changing anything. And so that's why it's just, you can so quickly improve the sentiment about around the product by just tapping into what makes it a must have. Mm. I want to talk about the customer experience with the product. Like I mentioned in, in the story with Gary, he said, you know, you know, your product is world-class if every customer loves it and they want to share it. 
when you talk about that love part, I picked up on this in the book. You said love creates growth, not the other way around. And for there to be love, there has to be an aha moment. What is an aha moment? So to me, an aha moment is, is really when, when you deliver an experience that makes the, makes the prospect suddenly say, wow, that's what I was looking for. This is great. And so it's not in the messaging. It's actually in the experience. And I'll give you an example because it's kind of, it, it can be a little bit of a unclear concept. But so for any business, if you, if you don't get them to an aha moment relatively quickly, then they're going to give up on you because they, they, they just don't have an experience that's going to keep them around. So it's really kind of speed to aha that is, is important. And ideally, you're going to be able to do that you know, within a couple of seconds of using the product. But in reality, some products are going to take a lot longer than that. And so Facebook would be a great example that you, know, you sign up for Facebook, you don't really get any value. You set up a great profile and you don't get any value. It's not until you start connecting with people that you see you see information from their timelines. They see information from yours. You start to interact with each other that you start to get some, some value in the product. And so what Facebook found when they really studied the data was that you really need about seven connections before you get that aha moment, that once you get that aha moment, that has a very tight correlation to long-term retention on the product. And so what they realized is they have to get people to seven connections relatively quickly. Fortunately, it wasn't one day because that would be hard, but they, they found that if they can't get people to seven connections within 10 days, then there's the, most of those people will disappear. And so that becomes this great focusing goal for a new customer. Do I start showing them a bunch of ads day one when they only have one connection? No, maybe I make a little bit more money in the short term, but that person's going to disappear. The only thing that matters for them for those first 10 days is to get them to those seven connections. And so they're everything they're doing is people you might know, uh, you know, they're just, they're constantly recommending people who you could potentially connect with because they know if they can get you to that tipping point, then you become part of their long-term kind of daily active users that are so much of the power of the, of the platform that they've built. For, for you who's listening to this, uh, I want you to put this into practice in your business. Imagine getting so clear on the one thing that your customer would have to experience when they first start doing business with you. What would it look like to have that level of clarity and then design an onboarding process, design an experience that ensures every customer has that aha moment? How would that change things in your business? How would that change things in your life? This is a massive opportunity. And and of all the things, Sean, that I've gotten from the book so far, this is the one thing for me. When I look at our Living Your One Thing membership community, I started asking the question, what is our aha moment? And when I started to pay closer attention to the community, when I'm getting on the phone with people, I realized it came down to moments of clarity. And, and, and this is where I'd love to spend some time if, if you'd feel comfortable turning the tables and asking me some questions because I'm, I'm just so committed to making sure that we really design a world-class experience around this. 
when I say moments of clarity, I mean when somebody comes in and they realize for the first time that maybe they were, they've never been taught how to set goals and they finally have the process. The first time that they realize that they are actually in control of their time and they've just subconsciously given it up their entire life. The first time they get clarity on the fact that it's not do everything that's not important so that you can hopefully have time to do the thing that's important, but you actually do the most important thing first and allow everything else to wait and that you can do it. You know, there's all these little moments. And now I ask the question, all right, how do I, how do I validate them and how do I systemize this? So, so what's, Interesting here is that if, if I agree that aha moment is probably one of the most important concepts in growth, but you can't generally define the aha moment without knowing what the must have experience is. Mm. That ultimately, ultimately, and, and we've already talked about how you source the must have experience, it's find the customers who would be very disappointed without you and figure out what is the one common benefit. That seems to resonate with most of them. Just getting his homework. (laughs) So yeah, so that's the starting point. Once you understand the must-have experience, then your aha moment is really the first taste of that experience. And so what you're you're trying to do is build alignment that ultimately delivers people to the must-have experience. And so that alignment starts with the right promise, a promise that is authentic around the must-have experience. And then the aha moment sits right in between those two points. So your, your promise sets the expectations and drives momentum. And then your must-have experience is what or your, your aha moment is what actually then delivers the first time that you deliver on that promise in a way that they, that they then stick around until they start to experience the must-have experience on a regular basis. So that's where I would start is find my users who would be very disappointed without the product and then start to hone in on what is that one most important benefit that matters for those people. Yep, haven't, haven't done that yet. Yeah, so I can give you a little bit more detail on how I do that. Um, what's, great, what's great is that you don't, you don't need... I can, I can do it on companies where I don't even understand their product. Sometimes it helps not to understand their product because I don't get caught up in kind of the complexity <laughs> or my own assumptions. And so what I do is I start with just a very open-ended survey to people where I'm asking that question, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? Finding the people who say very disappointed, and then just an open-ended, what is the primary benefit that you've gotten from this product? It's that from that, those open-ended write-in answers that I then start to source just ideas. I get kind of a lay of the land of benefits that people are getting from this product. And so on a second survey then, I run the survey and I actually build a multiple choice question off of those original answers. So I'm trying to narrow it down to the four most popular benefits that these must-have people have told me. And so the second time they're coming in and they're saying, which of the following best represents the benefit that you've gotten or something like that? You know, Which of the following is the most important benefit that you've gotten? The exact wording doesn't matter that much on that question, but each benefit should be distinctive from each other. So you're not kind of splitting the vote. And then the really important piece then becomes a follow-on question that's an open-ended question, which says, why is that benefit important to you? And it's in the write-ins to the why is that benefit important to you that you really start to get the context of why that benefit matters and why your product matters to those people. So, so really, what I'm doing on the analysis of that survey is that I'm basically looking at each of those answers 
first I'm narrowing down only to the people who say they'd be very disappointed without it. And then I'm saying, okay, for if I just took a pie chart of those answers, which one is most important for the very disappointed people or the, you know, the must have people. And then the second time around, I'm, I'm actually filtering by each promise. And I'm saying for people who picked this promise, 82% of those people said they'd be very disappointed without this product. So I'm trying to find basically sort of the, the broadest appeal benefit, but also the intensity of the appeal. And then part of it's a kind of a strategic decision for your business. Do I want to go broad and pretty intense or do I want to go like really intense on, on people considering this a, a must-have benefit? Mm, so, and this is me talking to you, the audience, the, <laughs> I am smiling over here because I read the book and I took really detailed notes and actually implemented, you know, not just listened to a podcast and then did something else. I actually took action and I still missed this. And by the way, folks, since we know that you like to consume content in audio form, Hacking Growth is available on Audible, who is one of the sponsors for this show. Um, so if you want to go ahead and get a copy of Hacking Growth, you can go to audible.com slash one thing and start a 30-day trial. And your first audiobook, in this case, Hacking Growth, would be free. So hopefully you guys will check that out. They have an unbelievable selection of audiobooks. They can transform your commute. Go to audible.com slash one thing and start your 30-day trial and get a free copy of Hacking Growth. So this is huge for you. You're getting the counsel that is exactly what I need right now. My question for you is, would you dare to take action? Would you dare to do the two surveys that Sean just mentioned, to reach out, do the must-have survey, find out how many people would be very disappointed if your product went away tomorrow and and of those people who said that, what's the primary benefit that they've gotten from the product so far? And then to reach out again and ask a multiple co choice question that says, which of the following best represents the benefit you've gotten? And then based on that answer, you can find out why that benefit is important to them. So you know the intensity of it. Right. And and depending on how many customers you have, a lot of times that second survey is is best to, to go to a whole new set of customers. But, you know, and if, and if you don't have that many customers, maybe... Maybe you hone in on this over time by just interviewing customers, but but ultimately what you're trying to do is is figure out what you're really good at that actually matters to your most passionate customers. And that's the business that you're in. That's everything that you're doing is around connecting more people who need that benefit to that benefit. And so all your marketing campaigns are reaching the people in need of that benefit. Your messaging is trying to set the right expectation around that. So when you're building brand consistency, you're trying to do that around what your product is genuinely great at doing. And then when you're optimizing your experience, you're trying to figure out what prevents people who want that promise from actually experiencing that promise. So then you're doing lots of tests in how you bring new people in to, to maximize the number who, who ultimately reach the aha moment. And then finally, the ongoing must-have benefit. Mm. The big aha I'm having right now is even when I read the book and knew that I needed to reach out and ask, I still went ahead and made the assumption on what the aha moment was. Yeah. How many of you who are listening to this right now have been making assumptions on what your customers want, the things that you should be doing because you never actually asked? <laughs> and 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 I think one of the key pieces there is that must have filter because I think most people if they were to try to survey this 
they would start out and just say, what is the average benefit that matters to my customers? And they would build everything on that. But if it's if you're not filtering to the customers that are, are hardcore passionate about your product, then what you're essentially doing is you, you might be just honing in on something that's fairly undifferentiated. So that's one of the things that I find when I ask that question. People who pick, I would be somewhat disappointed without this product. Usually when they say why, they, they say it's because I would just use product X instead. So basically, there's a product that does almost the same thing. I'd be somewhat disappointed because it's kind of a pain in the butt to change products. Ultimately, it's when they say I'd be very disappointed. Most of the times they say, I don't know anything that would come close to delivering the benefit I get from this product. And that's why, that's why they ultimately are going to stick around and keep using your product long term is because there's no real viable alternative that delivers that benefit to them. Hmm. My 411 for this week is getting destroyed right now. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tool we use to have clarity on our priorities. <laughs> What's the single biggest mistake that you see people making when they, when they read the book and they want to start taking action? That's hard. I think that, um, I think that you know, the book was largely written for, written for, for teams that, are, you know, that are, are, are actually trying to make a transition to, to manage growth as a team. And so I think for for those teams, it's it's basically, yeah, it's it's easy to buy into the idea of the book, but to get the whole company to buy into the idea and to to essentially reorient itself around that must have experience and start running tests to deliver on that, you just you need buy in across I think multiple departments within the company, and that's the mistake is that they're they're trying to do it just as the marketing team. Or maybe marketing is going to product and getting pushed back. Um, it, it, it's got to come from the top down. And so if the CEO does not buy into it and doesn't get everyone in the company aligned with, all right, we need to understand the value. We need to baseline data around our ability to deliver that value. And then we need to test to improve how we expand value and deliver value to more people. It, essentially, it's, a, it's kind of a they're, they're taking a baby step, and this doesn't work as a baby step. It, it it needs to be a wholesale rethinking of how you approach business, and that makes it hard. But it's uh, but it's really powerful. That's how these multi billion dollar companies like like Facebook and Airbnb and Lyft and Dropbox they've they've been able to grow using this super aligned approach around what really matters in the business. Right, and where where your book and our book is very aligned is that it's not like they're going in and trying to do a bunch of things at once how many things are they are they focusing on at a time Sean I mean ultimately what what the the one thing that they really need to figure out is the metric that reflects that must have experience so we call that a north star metric yeah that's that becomes this forcing function the whole company then is built to expand that north star metric and then and then at any given time you're thinking about what is the what is that highest leverage objective for expanding that North Star metric. So can you give an example of, of what a North Star metric is for a company like Facebook or Airbnb? Yeah. So for Facebook, it's uh, it's daily active users. So we talked about we talked about seven friends in 10 days is what they're trying to get to because they they know that once that person has enough connections, they'll turn into a daily active user. So they work backwards from that daily active user to figure out what is what is the gate between someone considering Facebook and someone who actually becomes a daily active user. And they found seven friends in 10 days is that gate. So 
it's just daily active users for them. For Airbnb, it would be nights booked. So they know that every time a night is booked on Airbnb, there's value that's created for property owners, so hosts, and there's value that's created for guests. And it's value that creates retention on a platform without, you know, if I just list my property and people don't book it, I'm not going to care about Airbnb after a while, right? So it's, I, I have to actually, actually have to actually get that value. And so that's what they found is that it's the, uh, it's the nights booked on there or for a company like Uber, it's, it's the, the daily rides or the weekly rides. Um, so it, it's really, it's really understanding what it is that delivers value for people in the platform. And your, your ultimate goal is to expand the value that's being delivered. And so just to contrast, like when, what happens if you, if you execute with a wrong metric? Well, hold on. Can I, can I just pull to a 40,000 foot to make sure that people followed that? What I heard you say is they look at, they get clarity on what their must-have experience is. And then they ask, what's the one metric that is most reflective of the must-have experience, which you call a North Star metric? And then they ask, what's the one thing we can do such that by doing it allows us to hit our North Star metric so that we can deliver our must-have experience? Mm -hmm. And they put all their focus on that one thing. Yep. Hmm. Somebody should write a book about that. <laughs> I think there's a couple that talk about that. <laughs> there you go. All right. So c- contrast if they don't do that. Yeah. So so in software, there's there's uh, you know the subscription based software. It's pretty typical that people optimize their business off of a, a metric that that we call um, MRR, so monthly recurring revenue. It's basically what's the value of my subscription revenue over time kind of looked at on a monthly basis. And that seems like it would be probably more important than, say, like a daily active user number. But the problem is, so, so like a finance department would really focus in on that, that MRR number, which is, is important. But let's say you primarily have annual contracts on your product and that by month three, people have stopped using the product. And so from an MRR perspective, from a monthly recurring revenue perspective, everything looks good. You, for the next nine months, that person who stopped using looks just as valuable as, as someone else who's using a lot. So what, what you need to really be focused on is, are they getting value? Are they continuing to get value from my product? And if they are, then the likelihood they're going to keep using your product goes way up. And so that's why a metric that's built around value being delivered to your customers is a much better indicator of the sustainability of your growth over time than something that's simply sales or monthly recurring revenue that sometimes those correlate closely with value, but, but they don't always co- correlate closely with value. So you, you want to understand what the must-have value is, and then you want to try to quantify that must-have value so that you are looking over time of, of how that footprint of value is growing. And that that's ultimately means that you're doing something that's important. And usually the, the dollar metrics follow that very, very well. Nice. So to, to wrap up, I always like to get people into action because I, consuming content's great. And we honor you for listening to this so far, folks. And the greatest results come when you take action. Sean, if they can only do one thing, walking away from this episode, what would that be? 
And only one thing, I, I would run that survey that we talked about. I, I would run the survey that helps them understand who are the must-have users and why do they consider your product a must-have. So with that information, you're probably going to start to make a lot of good decisions on how you, how you protect. That's the core asset of any business. So how you protect and build on that asset. Yeah. And, and one more time, and I'll give it to you. The question that you ask is, how would you feel if you could no longer use the name of your product? And you got four answers. Very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, or not applicable. I no longer used it. And then the follow-up question to that would be, what is the primary benefit that you've gotten from this product? And that way you can filter down to other people who said very disappointed. They also replied with, this is why it's so important. And that, that'll get you started. Yeah. So do you want to understand everything about that benefit, those people, quantify it, test to improve it. Every, everything really feeds off of that. So that's, that's the good one thing to walk away from. I love it. Well, where can people learn more about you, Sean? Uh, so my book, Hack and Growth, uh, covers a lot of what we've talked about. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So uh, you can follow me at Sean Ellis and uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. That's about it. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much, Jeff. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with Sean Ellis of Hacking Growth. This episode just made me realize um, how easy it can be to get caught up working in the business. Just going from day to day, trying to serve your customers, scale sales, boost customer satisfaction. It's hard to take a step back and work on the business. In this case, taking the time to really understand, is my product currently must have in the eyes of my customers? Do I know why the people who do say that my product is a must have, why it's so valuable for them? How much time are you pulling back and really getting to understand your customer's perspective? on your business? How much time are you investing in designing an experience that ensures that every single customer who comes in can fall in love with your product and want to share it? How would that change your business? There is a lot of value in this episode if you're willing to take action. One of the warnings, and this is, this is from our experience implementing this, when you sit down to do this, you may, at least I, my experience was, I expected to just find the answer. Oh, this is what the must-have is going to be. This is the aha moment. This is how we're going to design the onboarding experience. Was attaching myself to the outcome. And you heard it in here. I thought I knew the aha moment. And Sean went, uh-uh, you don't even know your must-have, brother. <laughs> you got to start over. Yes, thank you for the accountability. How can you mentally prepare yourself to go into a state of curiosity and exploration as you go on this journey? The chances are when you sit down to do this, you're not just going to get the answer and have immediate clarity on this is the aha moment. This is the must-have. You're going to have to put some work in. Are you willing to endure that ambiguity, that lack of clarity, so that you can finally discover the one thing that you have to be able to do for your customers, such that by doing it, 
would make your product a must-have, so then you earn the right to focus on scaling. Too many people just focus on scaling, and what they're scaling is not the highest version of their product or service. No wonder they don't experience exponential growth. Are you willing to do the work? If so, (laughs) the results can be there for you. Folks, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. We would suggest picking up a copy of Hacking Growth, whether you get it on Amazon or if you go to audible.com slash one thing to start your trial. We hope that you will take action. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you are not yet subscribed to the show, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. That way, all future episodes automatically get downloaded to your device. And thank you to those of you who have left us a rating and review over the last few weeks. We continue to see the numbers going up. That means the world to us. And as always, the highest compliment you can give us is sharing this with a friend. We are on a mission to help 100 million people take back control of their time. And every single time you share it, you play a role in that mission. Thank you. We honor you. And we look forward to being with you in the next episode.